Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting www.capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Ted Seides is the Managing Director of Hiddenbrook Investments, LLC. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Hiddenbrook Investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Hiddenbrook Investments may maintain positions and securities or managers discussed on this podcast. My guest today is none other than Josh Brown. Josh is the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, a New York City-based financial advisor that helps people align their investments with their financial goals. He is well-known in social media financial circles for his decade-long insightful blog, The Reformed Broker. 
his Twitter handle, Downtown Josh Brown, and his regular appearances on CNBC's Halftime Report. Josh has written two books on personal finance and has been published in every major financial newspaper and periodical. Josh's personal story is one for the ages, rising from a start learning all the wrong lessons in a boiler room style brokerage to embodying the moniker of the reformed broker. We spend some time hearing his story and then turn to how he applies the lessons he has learned to managing portfolios for individuals. The principles Josh employs at Ritholtz are simple to say, but hard to deliver. Don't be fooled by Josh's casual speaking style and occasional entertaining slip of the tongue. He has one of the sharpest minds in the business and is chock full of deep insights. Please enjoy my conversation with Josh Brown. Josh, good to see you. Hi, Ted. How are you? I'm doing great. So All right. I, let's start with... I'd like with... to point out Ted is wearing a tie, and I am not. Yeah, that's a fluke. I just, th- I just but, think you know, that should be brought into Today's the... media day. I got to do the things I got to do. So you have two well-known monikers, the Reformed Broker, your right. blog, yes. and Downtown Josh Brown Twitter handle. That's my rap name. That's your rap name. Yeah. No, that's uh, I've had that nickname since I'm like seven or eight years old. From, from your rap and music production obviously. life, obviously. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about the Reform Broker? Great name. Thank you. I know the story. I think it'd be, it's a great story to tell and sort of how you got to where you are today. Okay. So just like the, the Cliff's Notes, Notes version, I'll get the important parts in. I was a retail stockbroker, kind of fell backwards into that. I just, there was nothing else really for me to do. And I, I, I found that I had like this talent for cold calling and opening new accounts. And I worked at varying degrees of reputable, disreputable firms. I was never really happy with what I was doing. I just didn't know what else was out there. And I, I made the classic mistake of going to work for, quote unquote, my dad's friend. And that like set me off down the wrong path. And so whatever, I, I did it for a while. And I, I learned a lot about what not to do first instead of learning what to do. And I, I was really uh, never happy about that until recently. And now I look back and I say, well, I'll definitely make new mistakes in the future. But those were I had a front row seat for the worst, literally the worst investor behavior of all time. Um, and I watched it for like 10 years. So the reformed broker blog and persona came along in the financial crisis was kind of my realization moment that everything I had been taught up until then was wrong and the entire business model of transactional brokerage with retail clients was fatally flawed, could not be done correctly. And so I I just started telling the truth. I had nothing left to lose. In 2008, I started the blog and for a couple of years, uh, I just was saying everything that I felt was true and some of it was controversial. But I wrote the book, Backstage Wall Street. It was a little bit cathartic. It was like, look, here's my story. It's not a, it's not a, it's an entertaining story, but it's definitely not a do as I did story. And then from there, I did a really big pivot about seven years ago, almost eight years ago, where I said, I'm dropping my Series 7 and I'm going to become an investment advisor. And I'm going to work on the same side of the table as my clients, and the, and the, rest, is, and the rest is history. So let's, before we dive into that, which is going to be the focus of most of this conversation, are there like the three worst lessons? Are there things that people either taught you or you figured out in, in those terrible times that 
people either know or don't know, but everybody should know. Yeah, so here are the big ones. The first is the easiest thing to sell is whatever has just been working. And the reason it's the easiest to sell is because it's the only thing the buyer wants is to be a part of whatever's working yeah, now. Yesterday's dream. Yeah, I mean, for obvious reasons. We're, all, we're like that in every other facet of our lives. Why wouldn't we be like that in the investment markets? So if you are a broker or a wholesaler of mutual funds or a hedge fund marketer or whatever, the story you're going to go out with to people is the story that you know they'll be most receptive to because the incentive is to close a a sale. So Charlie Munger has this concept where incentives are everything. I totally agree with that. I've seen it firsthand. So like one of the big things I learned was if you have the thing that just worked, you can sell it really, really easily. And that's what I think a lot of our industry is, is when the ducks are quacking, feed them. So I think that that applies to almost everything, strategies, products, you know, go down the list. That's, that's what's going to happen in this industry. And it's not all the fault of the industry. It's the fault of the customers for not being more self-aware about their own predilections to want to buy whatever just worked or sell whatever just didn't work on the, on the other side. So that's number one. Yeah, that's a big one. I think another one is that there is no amount of regulation, and I'm pro-regulation, but there is no amount of it that's going to cure, you know, the fear and greed aspect to investing, or that's going to stop someone from doing what they want to do, like in the end. And you can do three pages of disclaimers or 300 pages. It's not going to get read. You can tell Wall Street, these are the rules of engagement, and they will find the most clever way to adhere to the letter of the law but push the envelope in a way that's close enough so that they get away with you know whatever they, they need to get away with to make more money. And you just actively it's saw ungovernable. That. Like at the end of the day, I think like regulators are a really important part of the mix. But then we also have to all be aware of human nature, and people are going to get away with what what they can if there's a greater reward for them on the line. And you just saw a bunch of smart people or, or snarky people running around trying to figure out. However, to get around the rules. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say they're like conventionally smart. I saw people that were very street smart that prior to being brokers or – another- by the way, all of the people of my generation – so let's say late 90s, I, I did my first internship at a, at a broker-dealer. That era, those same people are still out there. They're young, aggressive men from the tri-state area. They didn't have the degree that they needed to become investment bankers. They didn't have the pedigree, the connections to be at a hedge fund, but they want to be in the game. So all of those people that became stockbrokers in that era, 10 years later, they were doing the same thing, but it was mortgages. Right now, another 10 years later, they're doing payday loans for small businesses. It's the same buildings. It's If you go out east on Long Island to Melville and Hophog and Huntington on Northern Boulevard on Old Country Road. It's literally the same glass three-story buildings contain the same people. It's just 10 years later. So if they were selling stocks in the 90s, in the mid-2000s, they were selling people exotic mortgages. They had the same cars. It's the same Porsches. They wear the same cufflinks. Instead of the bull and bear, it's some other schlocky whatever. But so now what they're doing, and I'm telling you, it's the same people. It might not literally be the same people, but like the same type of person. They're cold calling, selling payday loans that they're going to sell to on-deck capital 
you know, and have yeah. them packaged and sell them to Wall Street. It's the same fucking shit over and over again. And the reason why is because they figure out what the public wants at that moment. So the public in the late 90s wanted stocks, especially the ones that were going to go up a lot. They didn't get them. They got the other ones. Then they wanted a second home in, in the 2000s. And right now, what they want is some way to pay for health care, for payroll, keep their diner running, their limousine company functioning. Whatever, their, whatever business is hurting is the business that these guys are going to sell cheap credit to. But that sounds a lot more dangerous for the population in general. You're talking about originally wanting to own stocks, which is extra Growth. balance sheet capital. Now you're home, and now you're talking about basic it's demographic. It's just, by the way, it's the same buyers, same audience. It's demographics. So in the late 90s, or in the, the entirety of the 90s, the buyer of those hot stocks from brokers over the phone, they were like in their 40s and early 50s. This is boomers getting into their peak earnings and investing years. 10 years later, they were like in their 50s and they wanted a vacation home. Or they wanted to trade up to the McMansion. Now they're in their 60s. They still have these small businesses. Their sons and daughters went to Cornell. They don't want to take, no thanks, Dad. I don't want your pizza place. I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. So, But they still have these businesses, and their businesses are hurting because so much has been automated. And like the world has passed them by, but they still have to earn a living. So now that same person that was buying internet stocks over the phone in the 90s, and was taking an exotic mortgage over the phone in the 2000. That person now is trying to keep their small business afloat using cheap credit. And it's the same type of person selling that to them. So I think the moral of the story is like the appetite is out there. There will always be a young, aggressive sales force that figures out how to give the people what they're asking for. So let's turn the table. You realized that's not what you wanted to do. Saw that light. Yeah. And... Joined Barry eight years ago, is it? Yeah, so I, I kind of, like, I had my, it's not an epiphany. It's not that glamorous. I was done. In the fall of 2008, all my friends work at Bear and Lehman, and they're done too. You know, every, we're all, everyone I know that's in the industry is, like, screwed. And, all right, I got to reinvent myself, or I got to get a different job, or whatever. So I kind of, like, had that moment where it's like, I don't have, I don't have anything to show for the last seven or eight years of being people's retail broker. Like I sold them stocks, they bought them, they, they sold those, they bought other ones. I made people some money, the market was going up, and then like everything I did for them, it doesn't mean anything, right? So that's where I was, and that's, it's not a good place to be. And then my bank account is empty, and I have a mortgage, and I have a two-year-old, and my wife is just like, you know, what are you doing? Like I, I married you, you were like, you were like smart, why are you banging your head against the wall with this? And I like would explain to her, the reason why I'm not making any money is because I don't want to do trades in my clients' accounts because the world is coming to an end and I don't feel like anyone knows what's going to happen. So I can't sit in a meeting with a client and be like, this is what you buy. This is what you sell. So a few months of that and she's, and she's like, Josh, you can't – we can't live this way. If you're in a business where – you have to hurt your clients in order to make money. You're in the wrong business. And like I, it just became so crystal clear to me finally. So I start the blog. I'm ranting. I'm like, look, this is what's really going on. And you know, this is what the public should know about what's really happening on Wall Street, et cetera. And then people start reading it immediately, which was cool. Like people were emailing me like, I don't know what gives you the, the chutzpah to say these things, but you should keep going. So I did. 
And that led to me being able to meet Barry. And I had been reading Barry's blog at that point for three years. And so those who don't know, this is Barry Ritholtz. Yeah. So so Barry was like one of the only people working on the street that was publicly screaming about this is insane. You cannot have home values be, you know, 20 times people's income. It's totally unsustainable. It's never happened before in history. Barry was really the guy that was drawing that line from mortgages to houses to the stock market. There were other people that were doing that too, but Barry was doing it like on a blog and seriously doing it. Like six, seven posts a day sourcing from ex-treasury officials and realtors and like he had the whole mosaic right there for all to see on the big picture in a way that no one else can claim they did. So that was the only way I was learning anything. I wasn't listening to the analysts at my firm because they didn't know anything. Like I felt like that was my education. So when I had the chance to meet him, it was amazing. And then within half an hour, 15 minutes, we hit it off. So I was very lucky. I had the chance to go work for someone that I considered to be a hero right off the bat. So it was a really easy call. You know, I had nothing going on. And it was like, look, I have this skill. I know how to explain investments to people. And I really care about doing a good job. And what Barry brought to the table was he actually knew what he was doing. And what he was lacking was he was not an advisor. He's a chief strategist. Like he was not client-facing or retail. So it was a really great combination where we could join forces and and, uh, and it worked. So let's, let's turn to how you think about this issue now. So now you're with Barry. You can do things as you perceive to be right by your clients. What is that? Your clients have a certain amount of money. You're investing it on their behalf. You're advising them. Yeah. So, so what, we're, what we're doing is, is high net worth wealth management. And we do it through the prism of financial planning. And neither Barry or myself are certified financial planners, but those are the client-facing people at my firm. And we made that decision a couple of years ago, a few years ago, prior to launching the firm. We were a practice at someone else's firm. And what we, what we realized was the asset management is great, and it's really important to us, and it's the thing that I focus on and Barry focus. But at the end of the day, it's useless if it's not in service to a financial plan. It's like I built I built you a house. There's no blueprint, so but it's look how nice it looks. Like so, the asset management part's the the fun part, the more exciting, the more interesting thing. We could talk about it, you know, markets and investments. Like we could talk about that for for hours and hours and hours. But if we're doing that absent a financial plan for a client, it has no value, and it's going to be really hard for the client to stick with during periods where it's not doing well or it's underperforming this or that benchmark. If we're not able to tie it to the thing that's really important to the client, which is, am I going to be okay? And the client, the client says, all right, here's my story. I make 500000 a year. I only want to work for another 10 years. This is what my lifestyle costs. This is what my taxes are. And then we come to the table. Well, here are the actuarial tables. No offense. Your wife's going to live longer than you. Don't worry. We'll find her a boyfriend. You know, like we, like we have these like serious conversations of this is inflation. This is the taxation rate in the state you live. These are all the things that we need to figure out. What's the ideal college to send your kids to? What's the acceptable in case that doesn't work? All of that kind of scenario building. And then all of the, the point of that is to be able to work backwards and then say, okay, you have a present amount of cash. You have this expectation of how much you'll be able to add to that stockpile over the next X years, we have some idea of what your standard of living is 
and some modeling about what it might cost you five years from now, 10, 15. Things can change. But like this is to the best of our ability. This is what we think you're going to need to do. So these are your future liabilities mapped out for you. And not just the numbers but the timing. The timing arguably is more crucial than anything. Not how much money will you need. When will you need it? So once we've got that mapped out, then, then we could say, all right, let's talk stocks and bonds. This is the portfolio that we think gives you not a perfect chance to get to where you're going, but a reasonably good chance. And hopefully we're overestimating your future costs, but maybe not. So we're going to have to make course corrections along the way. That's like a very rewarding way to do business with people is to be very to have the humility to say I can't promise you anything but this is what we think is going to work and if it's not working you have a relationship with us so we can make changes and if your circumstances change you have people that you could talk to that could tell you how that might impact your future plans like that's what I do for a living now what I used to do was Listen, listen, <laughs> my, my, my chief semiconductor analyst thinks Intel is going to beat their earnings by two cents and the street only thinks one cent. Like that's nonsense land. It has, it has no bearing on anything for people. So what we do now is really rewarding. I eat, sleep and breathe this stuff. Like it's not, it's not compartmentalized at all. If you follow me on social media, if you read my – like you know – I don't do fantasy football. Like this is my thing and I obsess over it and I really want us to do well. And I don't think that we're incredibly unique. I think there are thousands of dedicated advisors just like us all over the country. And I really think that our thing is changing finance for the better and taking it away from what it used to be, which was like dudes in suits, like three-piece suits and like this perception that they were going to give you the secret to beating the market. So we're not in that, that business. We're in the business of, look, we can actually answer some questions for you or give you the framework to come up with good answers. So once you have the framework set, once you have that plan in place, so you're for a group of clients, there's going to be some assets to invest. Return to the asset management side of what you're doing. How do you, how do you guys approach it? We are day trading of the storm, twenty four. <laughs> so, so this is where, so this is where things get really interesting to me because, again, I'm not on the planning side. I've got dedicated planning professionals that are face to face with clients on the investment side. So, we have some core beliefs. It starts with less is more. The people that are coming to us and they want the bells and whistles. Within the first conversation, we're going to weed them out, and it's for their own benefit because. We're not doing enough circus act stuff to make them happy. If that's what if they're looking for the recreational aspect of this, probably we're going to be disappointing. And that's good though. Like it's good for us to decide that on the first call with a household. Like I I don't want to tell them one thing and give them something else. Was that true from even when you guys started the business cuz sometimes that's where you have to make those trade-offs of you're trying to select the right clients for you, but you also have to build a business. So Barry and I started working with households in 2010, and we worked at a firm where they had like a they had like a model portfolio, and it wasn't like it wasn't bad, but we realized it wasn't for us. It was like superstar fund managers who avoided the crisis, like that was the gist of the portfolio. There's this common theme of this is what worked yesterday, so Correct. funds within a portfolio. And so we looked at that and said, well, this is dumb, and we need to come up with something better. 
So that that here's what that looked like: fixed income, Bill Gross, global asset allocation, Rob Arnott, value, large cap equity, Bruce Berkowitz, and like one by one, we watched. Why is jo- Josh? Why isn't the fixed income piece doing well? Oh well, Secretariat decided to bet against treasuries. So sorry. <laughs> like, why isn't large cap value working well? Oh, uh, Berkowitz, you know. Uh, lost his mind. He put himself on the board of a a Florida land bank that owns, you know, St. Joe's. Yeah, that owns that owns dirt in Central Florida. Yeah. Like one by one, it's like why, why the fuck are we apologizing for for active managers when all we really need to do is get clients the right exposure in these asset classes, and then the decision making is not did we back Secretariat or a glue horse? Then the question is like. Do we own too much or too little? Have circumstances in these asset classes changed to the point where we need to make an adjustment for our clients? Are they taking too much risk? And do they own the right version of this asset class, which is a whole other thing we can get into? Like those are the kinds of decisions we want to make. We don't want to bet on jockeys. I mean, it's not, it's not that it's not that we look down on that. It's like we're not equipped to do that. Maybe we look down on it a little, but like it's not our thing. So. What we essentially ended up building, and say we because my invest- I'm not even on my investment committee. That's a conscious choice, and I'll explain why later. But I have Ben Carlson. I have Michael Batnick. These are CFAs. Barry Ritholtz is our CIO. I have Dan McConlog, who's a 401k specialist, which is an area that we're getting more and more involved with. That's my investment committee. And the decisions that we're making are not – is now the time to short the euro and, and like we're just not playing those games. What we're really trying to do is say to clients, look, we think most of your money should be managed strategically. Less is more, lower costs where possible, some trade-offs, but you know, overall, we, we want to own the best version of each asset class. And then there were some asset classes that were saying we don't need to own it all. And then we think a portion of your portfolio should be tactical because in the real world, Nobody can watch a 50% drawdown take place in their portfolio and live through it. And actually, the more you try to force people to do that, probably the more of a likelihood there is that your client's going to blow themselves up. So the tactical side of the portfolio is also very interesting, and I think we do that very uniquely. We could talk about that later, but I think just bringing that idea to a client that part of this is going to be strategic, the other part is going to be somewhat behavioral. But we're going to marry those things together. And then for the areas that we think we need an active manager, but we don't have that skill set, rather than try to do it ourselves, we'll bring in an outside manager that we can stand by. And it's not secretariat. Couple, so that's, that's what we're doing on the asset. A couple line. questions to peel away layers of this. In general, hard to generalize. It's all very proprietary. That's all indivi- I can say. Yeah, right. Individual clients, but we'll generalize it. Where do you come out in asset mix? Have you looked across the whole firm? Is it just stocks and bonds? Will you move people into sort of less liquid things that you think are interesting for the long term? How do you go about it? At the current moment, everything we do is in a liquid public market. I would never say never. There is an argument to be made that absent private companies at this point, you're not really capturing what small caps historically gave you Mm -hmm. because these companies are not coming public anymore. They're coming public as large caps. That's right. There's an argument to be made that there should be some exposure to 
private market companies in consumer packaged goods, in technology, venture. We're not doing that because I would rather miss that opportunity than fuck it up. And I have not seen a vehicle that I could stand behind and say, this is going to be the right way to capture that. So the money that we're managing for clients, we're trying not to take counterparty risk. We're trying so there's no private equity at the moment. We're trying not to take manager risk. We're trying not to take obsolescence risk. So we're not doing venture stuff. We're doing municipal bonds. We're doing treasuries. We're doing equities all over the world, publicly traded. So how are you how are you implementing that in equities? If you're not taking manager risk, is it mostly index driven or variations of improvements so it's, on it's, indexes? We we call it rules based. So some of that would be market cap weighted index just because we don't think there's a way to add value above and beyond in that given segment. And some of it might be fundamentally weighted and some of it might be something else. But the overarching theme is like the rules are set in advance for how this strategy will be managed because what we're trying to do is remove our own terrible, terrible instincts. And my instincts are as bad as anyone else's. What we don't want to have is like, gut decision-making or, oh, I just read this thing in the Wall Street Journal. Let me completely flip around everything I'm doing. Like we're trying to not do that because for a few reasons. The first is it's cheaper to do rules-based versus wizard-based, right? Wizard-based investing is cool and it plays really well on TV, but it's like expensive and it's hard to rely on. I think what we're doing is part of a bigger trend that a lot of people in the industry are doing because – A lot of what we're doing on the planning side requires us to have some sense of what happens when this is in favor, what happens when it's out of favor. We have to incorporate things like standard deviation. Even though it's not a great measure of risk, it's a great measure of volatility. I can't do that with an actively managed strategy that's only been around for two years. But I can do that with an asset class over 20, 30, 40 years. And that's not to say that I think what just happened over the last 40 years is exactly what will happen in the next but at least it's some kind of a guideline. So by using rules-based strategies and back tests, which you know we could, we could go on a whole tangent about why that's not good. All right, fine. It's not good, but it's better than, ooh, that guy has a gleam in his eye. I think he could beat the market. You know what I'm saying? So I think the rules-based way is the better way to frame it rather than index or passive because when you boil it down, there's really nothing passive about it. So you started with less is more as one of the beliefs – Different version of less is more, but rule-based, low cost. Are there other core beliefs you have that drive how you go about investing? Well, sure. I think costs matter, and we're doing a lot of things to drive down costs in portfolios. We, We go into portfolio construction with a budget, and we will own something that costs more, but we have to offset that in another area for something. So a really good example is What does a budget look like for a portfolio? We would like to have the internal expense ratios in our portfolios be less than 50 basis points, but that doesn't mean they all are, and some of them are way below. Different strategies require, you know. So a really good example of that is to say, like, let's look at emerging markets. I could buy Vanguard, VWO, fine. What is that, 12 basis points? It's free. But is that the best exposure to emerging markets? I don't know, because then you have questions about index construction, so Vanguard is crisp. So you're not paying the royalty fee to MSCI, but there are country differences. Is South Korea emerging or is it developed? Well, that could have a big impact on 
future returns depending on whether or not you believe one or the other. So we have to make decisions like that. And the second thing is, all right, well, what if we say partly let's do the Vanguard version because it's good enough. It's going to get us the upside if emerging markets work, and it's going to approximate the downside and the risk as they don't. But what if there's a way that we could layer that with some kind of a quality screen given that in emerging markets, you have like governments being overthrown. You have maybe lax accounting rules in some countries. You have some question as to whether these public companies are state-run, hence they could do whatever they want or, or not. So what if we said a good proxy for quality in emerging markets is dividend payers? So in other words, you could fake a lot of stuff. You can't fake paying cash to people. So what if we overlaid plain vanilla Vanguard index exposure with another piece of the puzzle that's got a dividend payout bias, and that's our way to kind of get to quality. And even if it doesn't outperform, to just feel like we're tilting toward the better companies overseas. So we're trying to do intelligent things like that that don't require wizardry and witchcraft. They just require like a little bit of, you know, a little bit of spreadsheet work and a little bit of common sense. And then being able to communicate that to clients. Like, I think that's a value add to be able to do that. So that's how we're thinking about each asset class. And then, candidly, there are things that we're just not doing. We have no commodity. None. Why? Don't need it. Works without it. I, you could show me years where having it was good. I could show you years where having it was – we're not big buyers of the currency hedging idea. We think that currency is a risk, but risks are sources of return. So – Give me the risk. So you talked about emerging markets and, and some of the ways you try to emphasize quality, the things that make sense. Emerging markets in particular, there are so many problems with market cap-weighted index construction. Huge problems, yeah. How do you do it in Who some wants of wants to be overweight uh, Russia? Yeah. Well. This year you might. Last year you might. The year before you definitely don't. And so as you go to other markets, if you go to developed international U.S. where you get more and more efficiencies. Do you have a tendency to do less of that fine-tuning around the basic index? That could be the case. I think like one of, the, one of the traps that I used to fall into and I've learned not to is to try to think about things like try to come up with the reason for why something shouldn't work and try to outsmart. So Europe's a really good example. There's like this whole stigma about – so by the way, this is the first time – in a long time and only the third time in history that international stocks have been outperformed by the S&P by 100% over the trailing 10-year period. So that doesn't lead me to tell you, guess what's going to happen next? But we do think mean reversion is pretty powerful. So this whole narrative about European stocks, like, oh, yes, of course, European stocks are cheaper. They should be. Their governments suck because our government's so great. (laughs) Oh, and they don't have technology there like we do and – all right, there's always a narrative. There's always, like, but they all like intuitively are compelling. You can't just dismiss them. They do make sense. Europe does not have the technology industry that we have. But then you think like, well, 16 years ago when the NASDAQ fell 90%, we didn't have the technology. It grew. So I don't know like what's going to be the driver of European index performance versus US, but maybe there, there are industries there that are going to grow – two, three, fourfold in importance in the index. So to just look at MSCI Europe and say, oh, it sucks. It's all banks and mining and oil companies. Or today, today it is. In 2005, you could have said, look how big energy is in the US. And it's way more important than whatever, right? And then just the other thing, like 
these artificial designate like people act like these indexes, indices, and sector designations were handed down like uh, the Ten Commandments. I met David Blitzer. He's a nice guy. He's a dude in a bow tie. He's an active manager. He's he's saying this is what's in the index. I met Sam Stovall. He's saying this is this kind of so Walmart is a consumer staple. Target is a consumer discretionary. Well, okay, if you say so. <laughs> I just go to the one that's closer to me to buy the same thing. But okay, sure. So to sit like look at like sector composition of, of a country and make a snap judgment. You think Amazon's a tech stock? It's not. It's consumer discretionary. It's not in the tech index. Nobody understands. Nobody knows that. I didn't know that. Somebody had to tell me that. So we try not to look at these country by country things and be like, oh, it only makes sense that U.S. will outperform going forward because of how important technology is. Okay, maybe, but maybe not. And I don't do that anymore. I used to play those games. I've become humbled by playing those games because we make this thing up in-house. We put it out every year. It's the quilt of which countries outperformed. And so we spent it's like changes all the Netherlands yeah. in, in 2011 is the best in Europe. You tell me why. You tell me who could have told you in 2010 that that would have been the case. So I understand that there are people out there that are doing those types of macro, and they don't know what they're talking about, but they, they're really good at convincing other people that they do. So, so we don't play those games. So turn to this investment committee concept. So you said you, you yourself don't go on the investment committee. So yes. the committee makes the decisions. What's the decision-making process? What are the key variables they're thinking about? When they're making decisions for clients. Sure. So we crack an egg into a bowl of blood and then we roll the bones. Like, it's, listen, it's not – we're not doing witchcraft and, and we're not trying to outthink the other 10,000 RAAs. I think the version of strategic asset allocation that we're giving clients is awesome. I think it's the best there is, but I'm biased. And is it's there fine. something is – is it a fairly static construction for a particular client? We want to make as few changes as possible. But we will make changes when the world forces us to. Without going into detail, there was a time when we had to replace a fund that had an incredible track record, had done nothing wrong other than got too good. Like too good track crew. record was too good. And as a result, they had become such a huge part of the asset class in which they had made money that we just couldn't intuitively understand what they were going to do to repeat that. And that's not like, ooh, let's, let's, let's fire a manager and hire – that's just like, guys, we have to be realistic. The benefit of this is probably not going to be able to show up. And we might be wrong, but it's worth being wrong because of how low we think the probability. You know, So like, we'll make decisions like that, but that's like very sporadic. Mostly what we're trying to do is just stay true to what we're saying to people and make sure that the allocation to each account is as true to the model as it can be. Like that kind of nuts and bolts stuff is not sexy. Is the model something special or is that just a, a broad asset allocation model? Well, I mean, it's, it's probably not as broad as a lot of other models out there. We're not the pizza pie with the most slices mm -hmm. deliberately. Yeah. So there are things that we're just leaving out that other people – like we're not doing sovereign international bonds. Don't need them. Works without it. Yeah. Our clients – are not paying their expenses in other currencies, so we don't need the income coming from other right. countries. Like we'll like we'll make we'll make these types of reductive decisions more often than we'll make decisions to what can we add to this? What features can we bring into the mix? 
so wholesalers hate us. Like we love having conversations with iShares and Vanguard and, you know, they come sit with us and State Street, awesome people. And we learn a lot from those meetings, but we almost never take action. And I tell these guys, get your parking validated because you're not making any money here. Like at the very least, let me stamp your, your ticket. So that's, that's our bias. So it doesn't mean never do anything and everything's perfect the minute we decide it. The decision-making is glacial. We did something earlier this year. We overweighted foreign stocks relative to U.S. There was a confluence of factors that, and I don't mean dramatic, but enough to matter. And so far, so good. But like that wasn't like a swashbuckling mega market call. It was just like, this is the right thing to do. Looking at the potential for mean reversion and valuation and trend. And this is something that we can do for our clients that is not necessarily plain vanilla. If it turns out not to be a great decision, it's not going to take their retirement away. You know, and again, so so far it's looking like a good decision. Talk to me in 10 years whether or not. So we're going to make some decisions on that committee. Now, why am I removed from it? Because I'm the CEO of the firm. And I never, ever want us to make an asset allocation decision for our clients for the sole benefit of the firm or where there could potentially be some conflict. And there are a lot of different examples of that, like where that could happen. Give give one. Exactly what I – so let's say we have a fund that's performing incredibly well and we've become associated with it because we own it. And then the committee says the right thing to do is to get out of it. But I say – yeah, but from a business standpoint, we should really stay with it because it's part of what our clients have come to expect from us or it's part of the, the, the mythology around the firm is that we've done this. Like Barry has been talking about this issue for 15 – the agency problem, right? Like Barry started doing financial blogging in 1998 on GeoCities. He was coding his blog posts after, after writing and editing them. He's been talking about this forever. This problem with – when there is a financial intermediary, there are always other concerns other than the client. I'm not so naive to say like that can be 100% minimized, but to the extent that we, we can make we – can, we can put in place practices now that will keep that from being a factor in the future. So I have to make decisions every day about what's best for the firm. And to a very great extent, what's best for our clients is what's best for the firm, obviously. The better we do for people – the more referrals we'll get, the, the bigger we'll become. There's a component of that, which is you've mentioned a couple of times the behavioral aspects of investing and how it befells everyone. How do you manage your clients in such a way to get them to stay the course? Because what you're talking about is a slow-moving, sensible asset allocation approach how crazy with, that? <laughs> with tilt that makes sense based on valuation and mean reversion. And yet we both know that even that strategy will have its hard times. We just, we just had it. We just went through the worst thing that could happen to my firm, a flat market. We just did it. It's over. We went through it. We had an earnings recession in the, in the S&P 500. By the way, S&P 500 is 20% higher than where it was in the third quarter of 2014, but earnings are still below. So I don't know what that says about the predictability of markets based on earnings. It's not good. But we had that period. So from 2014, probably beginning with the oil price crash, through August, I think, of 2016. So it's a very long time. 
we kind of had a flat stock market. And by the way, that's that's putting it nicely. Beneath the surface, much worse. Like the index, was, the S&P was the best thing. The median S&P stock was down 25% peak to trough during this period of time I'm describing. International markets were destroyed. Germany, France, all of them. Don't even get me started. Emerging markets, Brazil, huge, huge drawdowns. So we just got through it. And how'd you get your clients to stay the course? Because we're using evidence, and that's number one. And number two, our clients are self-selecting. You will never, ever see me sitting at a county fair in a booth talking to potential investors. Our clients are reading us every single day in some cases. Once a week, we send things out to them if they're not coming to our sites. They understand the way we think about this stuff. They may not fully grasp everything we're saying, but we are doing so much work on ongoing investor education, not marketing schlock, not like sending people the email if you missed the five best days of the month. We're not doing that. I'm talking about like every day, every day. So existing clients, if they're not speaking to us, they at least understand that we're paying attention. And so they understand the way we think about mean reversion and Sources of risk actually representing a source of return and risk and return are related and we've done so much of that work over the years and we do so much of it every day that I think it helps them get through a period like that so that when the market explodes to the upside, which is what happened after, immediately following Brexit, the race was on and not just US stocks. I show you the returns of emerging markets and European stocks since Brexit and especially since the US election. Everything went vertical. Well, how do you get your clients to that point is the hard part of this business, right? The hard part is not sitting back and watching returns pile up. We think that that's going to happen anyway. The hard part is that flat market and they're like, well, month after month, I, I, I log in to my performance reporting software that you guys provide me. Thank you, Josh. Nothing's going on with my portfolio. Am I going to be okay? Is this holding back the returns that I need for retirement? But Getting them to that point is the hard part and talking them through these periods where international stocks can't get arrested. Nobody wants to own them. Outflows every month. Why are we doing this? Why don't I just own the S&P? Screw the S&P. Why don't I just own the NASDAQ? Forget the NASDAQ. Why aren't I 100% Amazon? It's human. We don't make fun of people. I'm the same way. Why am I a Knicks fan? So like Wait, that's the why, job. That's the job. Though. Why are, why are you job. a Knicks fan? I mean, I this is one of the tough. We, we're my, gonna we got to get there in a second. My dad did that to me. No, but like this is the job. The the yeah. real job is that the real job is not define you know divining. Ooh, is like Dr Pepper Snapple going to be better than Pepsi? Which one do I buy for this quarter? Like that's not the gig. The gig is getting people through. So the good news to answer your question, we just did it. Yeah. We got them. Through that hump, it was two. It was twenty three months. It sucked. It was no fun. So, so much of what you write on your blog, what Ben writes on his blog, are these great tried and true investment lessons. And then, I don't know how many times a week you're on CNBC talking about stocks, and it's the same horse race that everybody else is playing. How does that fit into both your mindset and? what your clients perceive when you're talking about this stock going up on whatever it is. Uh, well, I love, so report. I love stocks. I, vote, I mean, my first entry to the business was I wanted to be involved in some way in stocks. You know, I have a little IRA. I own a handful of names. My retirement money, my real money is all in the models that we manage for clients. So I eat my own cooking. And everyone at the firm, by the way, 
all of our 401k contributions go right into the same models our clients own. And that was very important for us. But I love the stock market. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't exist. It's the, it's the greatest thing ever. And I mentioned earlier, I don't have hobbies. I'm not betting on sports. I'm not doing fantasy stuff. I play guitar a little bit, but like, this is my thing. So those two things, this is sort of fascinating, right? What you've learned from this colorful history in the business is that there's a certain way to do things that works over time. Yeah. And it's simple. It's be smart about whether it's indexes or things that slightly enhance it. Be smart, be patient, be long-term. Yeah. And yet you also have this massive passion for the things that come in the way of that. I don't think it comes in, a w- in the way. I can walk into an FPA conference, you know, Financial Planners Association, which I frequently do, and I could do my spiel, and everyone in the room will nod. They all agree. So what's the fucking point of that? Everyone, I'm a missionary. I want to go where the people are, the regular people. And the regular people are watching financial television. By the way, I'm on the best show on the network for sure. It's called The Halftime Report if, if, if anyone out there hasn't seen it. It is the best because they put someone like me who's in wealth management next to someone who's a bottoms-up value stock picker, next to someone who manages a billion and change for TIAA Cref, next to someone who's a hedge fund, next to someone who's an options trader. And we're talking about the issues of the day. And we're all coming at it from a different angle. And I love that because it really keeps me in tune with what's going on. But it also reminds me that I have my own viewpoint. And in any given time, it might be wrong. So it might be wrong to tell people, don't sell out of FTSE 100 before Brexit. It turned out to be right, which is what I was telling people. I am not making changes based on Brexit, blah, blah, blah. Great advice. I didn't know at the time. It's just how I felt. There were other people on the show coming on. Nope, you have to buy puts, and also you have to short the pound. And that actually, that actually was true. But like, I need to to hear opposing opinions that are not mine. I get to do it in public on CNBC on the best show on the network, and we work really hard to make that show informative. Not every segment is going to play to a wealth management audience. That's not the audience. Half the audience is professionals. Then you have a lot of active traders, but then you have a lot of people that just casually want to flip it on to see what's going on with their portfolio. And it's, it's a hard job for Bloomberg and Fox Business and CNBC because those are all very different people. It's not like ESPN. People turn it on. They want the scores and the highlights. This is different. This is like you can't really give advice in this format. So, But what you can do is present different viewpoints of what's happening in the markets, the economy each day. And so, look, it's a little bit of a missionary thing where I'm going out there to where the people are and not everyone agrees with me. And I don't care. I say what I think is right. God bless the show for letting me do it. And sometimes when I come on and I say, there's no trade here. Or, look, if you really wanted to trade it, this is what you could do. I don't think it's a high probability. Like, I get to say things like that. And I think it's an amazing experience. And... I get that question all the time, and it's it's a reasonable question. You get it? Do you get it from clients? So, do you have clients that will watch you and so then smart. and then want to act no, they on? Totally get it. They get it. We have clients that do some trading of their own in their own account because they just they they want to be involved, and we don't discourage them. Like what? It's their money. It's their money. This is not like I could adopt this really puritanical thing where I I like yell at people for wanting to trade Apple calls into the earnings. Like, I'm not going to do that. These people, these people are brilliant. Our clients are like 
software engineers and doctors and executives at oil companies and like they're bright people. And if they have accumulated six million dollars and they want to take a quarter of a million of that and they want to buy Nvidia, I'm I'm not gonna. It's not my. That's not my job to stop them. My job is to say, okay, that's fine. Here's what that does or doesn't do for you in the context of your financial plan and your overall portfolio. So if you take that money to zero, you'll still be fine. And do you think there's merit in whether it's the doctor buying NVIDIA or even to some extent the tactical piece that you have, having some small allocation to being active so that it helps the clients stay the course with the core of what's really going to drive their returns? Of course returns? there is. Listen, uh, Jim Cramer's last book, the fir- this, is a ch- this is a change in religion for him. The first thing he says is the first money you accumulate in the market should be in an index fund. He is not telling people what he was saying in, in 2003, 2004. And the reason is that the world evolves and people get, people get these realizations over time. And so he had that realization that mad money is not core money. Like it's – so my, my children are 11 and 7 turning 8. And I started this summer, last summer, teaching about the stock market. What do you think? I put them in Vanguard 500? What are they going to learn doing that? I want to teach them about companies. I want to teach them about business and earning profits and innovation. And so if I try to teach them, here, let's buy – of course I own – they have 529 plans. They have Vanguard coming out of their asses. They don't know it. But if I want to teach them what's the right way to do that, probably through the prism of Apple, Under Armour. Let's buy things, things that you guys know. consume. And yeah, they, you know, I, I had the same a couple of years ago. My my oldest, I have twins that are eleven, were studying westward expansion, and uh, we I, it was a shadow portfolio. But I started talking about Dunkin' Donuts, right? The Dunkin' Brands because they Which were almost no they, stores out there. That's right, and they had the map of showing this was their growth profile, and they got it right. And and kids, kids learning about the stock market should also learn about making money and losing money and randomness. And actually, Under Armour presented a really great chance for my son to learn about losing money. So Under Armour has been a huge disappointment over the last year. It's been a great stock long term, but it's whatever. But he would say, this is so great. He would say, Dad, I I just bought all this Under Armour clothes and all my friends and everyone's wearing Under Armour. Why does the stock keep going down? And just like explaining to him like – it's not about whether or not people are buying the clothes. Are people buying more or less of the clothes than the people investing in the stock thought they would and teaching him about expectations and then throwing this up and then one day it would go up and he'd say, dad, why is it up? Why is it up? I'd say, well, here's a news article, but that might not be why it's up. There's just random. He would say, what do you mean random? I would say the same way CC Sabathia could pitch a great game and then a terrible game. A great game against a, a great team and a bad game against a bad team, and it makes no sense intuitively, but it just – so I feel like the stock market is a great way to teach – like it's a great prism to look at the world through. So I'm not going to do that with SPY. So if someone says to me, oh, so you're saying cost matters and you're saying less is more and you're saying bias toward inactivity and blah, 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 but – you're aware of what's going on with John Deere stock and you're aware of what's going on with Microsoft. Oh, I'm sorry. Have I committed a heresy in your make-believe church that you created? <laughs> kiss, my, you know, kiss my ass. I do whatever I want. Try and stop me. 
So that's that's kind of my my attitude on that. Uh, but it's a good question. Like that dichotomy, it's definitely it's two. It's not two different worlds. It's two different halves of yeah. a whole. Yeah, I well, I've struggled with the same issue. And stop struggling. It, we only live once. You should enjoy yourself. You should do what you oh, want. I, I appreciate that. So let's talk about that. I mean, Carmelo Anthony. We we. Can, can this guy win? Is he a winner? He's gone. It doesn't matter. He's gone. He, he probably is. But what's your what's your take on Melo? And should he have been here for so long? Or can the guy just not be a part of a winning team? I'm going to say he can't be, and then he's going to win a championship next year. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. From a lifelong Knicks if, fan, if he if he if he goes if he goes to uh, Boston or Cleveland and they win a championship next year, then all that is out the window, right? Can Phil Jackson be a part of a winning team that doesn't have Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant on it? That's maybe a more interesting question. I don't know. Right. I don't know. By the way, there's a really interesting corollary to that with active management. Peter Lynch retired in 1990. It's already almost 30 years ago. Could he start today, even if he was a young man? Does he still have the same advantages? These questions are they're really interesting. We did a poll, and we asked, could Warren Buffett, if he started today with a million dollars, and... You could take it any way you want, 84-year-old Buffett or, or 34-year-old Buffett from the 60s. Either way, could he start today with a million bucks and outperform the market over the next five years? Two to one, two to one on Twitter, hundreds of votes, two to one said he could. Could do it. He could do it. I would frame it differently, having spent a little bit of time with him. I think if you gave him a million bucks, he's one of the few billionaires that I've met. I think if you gave him a million bucks today, in 15 or 20 years, he'd be a billionaire again. But he probably wouldn't do it in the stock market. Well, he'd be dead, so it doesn't matter. 34-year-old Buffett. I like that. Actually, I like that heuristic. He wouldn't do it in the stock market, And he would never accept a five-year challenge. He would laugh at it. Yeah. I don't know if the Buffett of 1965 would laugh at it, but the Buffett post-1985 would say – Five years irrelevant. You're well, that's, my there's that other there's that other fact that I had just came across recently that he wasn't a billionaire until he was sixty. I mean, uh, talking yeah. about the power we of did, compounding, we did, we did so, it's just we, amazing. We did something on that. It might have been from you guys that well, I com- read it. Compounding yeah. is like it's like uh, grains of sand piling up, but then all of a sudden there's a moment where it becomes a hockey stick. Yeah, and it's just like that progression to get to that point. Like it's a really interesting visualization. Batnick did that. He did a chart of of what that looks like, and it's it's great, sick. Yeah, we, it's a great tool. All the charts and all the blog posts and all the stuff we're doing, it's not like attention. Ooh, read my blog post. We use these things as tools, and we store them up. And we have a client ask us an out of the blue question, and we say, "Didn't Ben do something on that three years ago? Let's dig that up, yeah. and we'll put that in front of the client, and we might even update it." It's almost the power of compounding in helping your clients stay the course because you so. have all I these tools. So. We've done a lot, and we. Don't have that as organized as we should. But you're right. There is a compounding effect there because when Barry writes about stock buybacks next week, he can link back to eight other things he said about it. So he doesn't have to rehash and repeat. It's like you write a blog post for your site or for Bloomberg View or whatever. You want to do like 500 words and make a point. Nobody has time for more. It's not let me tell you everything I've ever thought about on this topic. So having that ability to go back to previous things, if somebody wants more, I think it's pretty powerful. It's very valuable, yeah. Let's do a couple of closing questions, fun stuff. Wait, we started? No. Okay. Oh, sh- did I hit play? Oh, I, yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> Let's do it again just right. in case. What was your favorite sports moment as a participant or observer? Sports moment. Well, I was not a good athlete. 
Oh, so it could be could be a fan. No, this is actually no, no. This is so easy. My my son is like a star pitcher and the cleanup hitter for his little league team. I don't know where he got it from. It's definitely not in my genes. My wife is a little bit athletic. Every day he makes me proud. Last night he pitched three innings of shutout, shutout baseball. I think there was one one. He said he's eleven, right? So I'm coaching. No, he's my, seven. Oh, this is he's seven. Baby, he's pitching from forty feet. We clocked him. He's pitching forty-five miles an hour, and he's throwing strikes. And he hits a batter, and like the next pitch is an inside strike. Like he's fearless, which I also don't have. I'm riddled with anxiety. Every day, watch coach. So I'm a coach. I, I watch him play. He's like completely unrattled. He had to come in and relieve another seven-year-old who loaded up the bases because we have pitch limits for the little kids. So the, so the other kid threw 35 pitches in the inning, which is immediately out. So my kid had to come on with bases loaded and get three outs, and he did it. Two of them at the plate. One of them, a line drive hit him. This is a seven-year-old that is just amazing. Like, that's for me, that's like my best sports moment. That's nuts. Nothing yeah. will ever top that. For sure. No giant Super Bowl or anything. So that's an easy question to answer. What's your favorite thing to do that's a complete waste of time? Podcast. No. I'm I'm (laughs) fucking with you. I'm fucking with you. My favorite thing to do is a waste of time. Probably like social media stuff. Like a lot of it is just nonsense. I don't know. But it's like it's – I guess it's interesting to engage with people. I probably am not as purposeful as I should be there. Maybe that will change as I I get older. But that's probably uh, one good example. I play Candy Crush. I, cause, cause I don't, I'm not on, like, I don't have like the good drugs. Like I'm not on Wellbutrin or uh, Abilify or I probably, like, I'm like <laughs> au natural. So the only way I could take my mind off the millions of things going on. Candy um, Crush. Is, it's so stupid. It's, it's, it's your yoga and meditation wrapped into one. I Look, I read, but honestly, like uh, I'm on the train home at like six o'clock. I've been at it since five in the morning. Like, I wake up and I start my blog and the whole spiel. Like, at 6 o'clock, I should be reading a book. I just can't. Like, I literally can't, like, three words in, and I'm, like, thinking about everything else. So, like, that's an example of something. I don't know if it's a waste of time, though, because, like, it relaxes me. It's so dumb. But whatever, it's, you know, it gets me. It gets me through the day. Hey, let's take this in a personal sense because we've talked a lot about it on the business side. So, what do you know today that you, you wish? You haven't asked me any fitness tips yet. Well, you haven't asked me anything about this. Is a this is a abs. podcast. We're not oh, getting right. a chance to sort of see <laughs> this physical specimen in front of me. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew ten years ago? The impact of my words on people. Like I have this thing where I know exactly the right thing and the wrong thing to say to someone, depending on how I want to just completely make them like me or hate me. Like I'm pretty good at I'm pretty good at reading a room and social cues. And I probably over the years have said things to people that I wish I could take back or didn't say things to people that might have helped me. I, I kind of have this streak in me where I'm a, there's a little bit of self-sabotage. So if I'm meeting with someone who could potentially be helpful to me in business, but they say something to me that rubs me the wrong way, there have definitely been times where I said, watch this. And maybe I shouldn't have. So, so maybe <laughs> like if I could tell my younger self, ease up on people and you don't always have to like get the last word. You always have to be the smartest person in the conversation and you can let people say things that are wrong without correcting it and like that kind of stuff. I definitely wish I were better at then and now. Yeah. You know, but frankly. that's a good one. That's but I, really I don't think one. people teach. I don't think that's really taught. I think like you kind of have to instinctively 
know how to be a good person. Like you can go to Sunday school and your parents could teach you that stuff, but I think you really have to figure it out for yourself. Yeah, and you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I probably didn't pay any attention for a long time. Yeah. And now maybe I'm too hyper aware of how I'm perceived. There's a such thing as being like overly sensitive. Well, that, uh, that'll that'll come in ten years when we do this again, and you could look back and I think like social media yourself did that to chill to, out to a little us, bit to some extent. Well, too. that's true. Like yeah. everything you say, you're like your own editor now. Like, all right, who's this going to get me in trouble with? The Native Americans, the lesbians, the transgender. Like, uh, go down your checklist. All right, I could tweet it. Like, I think we're yeah. we're kind of like that a little bit, and it's understandable why. Yeah. So. You know, maybe that's maybe I'm becoming too. The pendulum's going too far the other way. But all right, but. La- last question. You are an elderly gent, 40, 50, I am. I'm 40, 40, years old. 40, 50 years from now. Oh, looking back on your life and what I'm making it fifty. What? Yeah, you that's are. Not, what? What lessons? Well, now you will. Now that you're my director, in the flow. My director of financial planning did my financial plan for my wife and I a few months ago. We we re we went through everything. He's not baking that in. <laughs> 90 is not part of my financial All right, so 89, um, Ah. you're looking back, you've you've been through such an incredible journey to this point in time, you're doing things now that are really resonating for you. What advice would you give yourself, either today or as a young man? It's all cliche. Like, the young father, I would, like, go back and say, like, you know, cherish every moment. I mean, anyone with kids would say that, so I guess that's not that interesting. I don't know, probably like uh, focus on nutrition and sleep a little bit more. I didn't really take care of myself in my 20s and 30s. I'm trying, like at least at least in the last few years, I've been trying harder. And how do you, by the way, with that, with that work schedule that you put together, because you do grind from early on, when do you find the time to do those two key things? 2025. <laughs> Seriously, uh, you know, look, I ride a bike yep. very often, but that's half the year. And then half the year where I live, it's too cold out. I try to do push-ups. I mean, it's not – it's just not part of my day right now. I wish it were. My commute is ridiculous. It's like three hours and 20 minutes door-to-door if you count both directions. I work during my commute. I guess I'm doing a lot of walking around the city, so maybe that's right. – maybe the reason I'm not uh, 300 pounds is that I'm walking miles and miles every day. In the summers, I'm very active. I probably go down 25 pounds, and then the fall comes along, and – Look, uh, I don't have the answers on that stuff. I probably wish that I had established better habits earlier in my life, and maybe that would make it easier now. But I just feel like I'm in this phase where we're building the business. I have young kids. Like I'm trying to like focus on that stuff. And I know it's I know it's like a false thing to say I can only do one and not the other. But probably like when I get everything where I want it to be, I'll be able to say, all right, I did it. And now, for my lifespan and my well-being, I have to focus elsewhere. But that's just not where I am right now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's dangerous to keep telling yourself that. Well, look, but it's the, also... The viewers that don't know me, they probably think I'm, like, uh, stuck in a bed. I'm yeah, not, no, no, I'm no. not that out of shape, guys. <laughs> I'm like, I, I have, like, dad bod plus would be, like, that's, that's, that's a good. That's a good tell description. Them, just tell them. Dad bod plus? That's yeah. about right. Like, I'm fine. You're fine. Okay. You're fine. Now, you're, you're doing well. And look, you have to be honest with where you are at any point in time. I mean, that's also, you can't, you can't hold those things over your head that these are the things in the future I'm going to get to that. I know, you know guys someday. with washboard abs that are unemployed. I mean, we can't all be Patrick O'Shaughnessy. 
We can't all be perfect. We can't, we can't all I be superhuman. You know what? I think we should end on that note. We can't all be we Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Nine hundred <laughs> books a year. And and do 500 sit-ups a day, and not all of us are capable not, of that. Not all of us, yeah. <laughs> some, some one is, but not all of us. All right. Josh, is great fun. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one, and see you next time. 